Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. I'm Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HousingWire, here with the latest episode of the HousingWire Daily Podcast. On Mondays, my guest is always HousingWire Lead Analyst Logan Motoshami, and we cover the latest economic news and what he's looking at for the week. But before we dive in, here's a brief word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Maverick Solutions, first guarantee mortgage corporation's proprietary suite of non-agency and non-QM products. When you need a lender that can handle the unique needs of today's borrowers, look to FGMC and Maverick Solutions. Whether your client requires flexible income documentation, is a first-time investor, has experienced credit challenges, or needs a jumbo option, Maverick Solutions has got you covered. Maverick Solutions products are available through wholesale and non-delegated delivery. Learn more about Maverick Solutions at fgmc.com maverick. First Guarantee Mortgage Corporation, NMLS ID 2917-5800 Tennyson Parkway, Suite 450, Plano, Texas, 75. All right, we are ready to get into the main topic of our conversation today. So, Logan, welcome to Housing Wire Daily. It is great to be here. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. We have so much to talk about. I feel like I say that every week, but economic, macroeconomic factors, things that affect housing are going on all the time. Yes, it is. And it was a a very interesting jobs report. It's been a very interesting job market. I think for the first time, in recent uh, modern day history, uh, we're seeing what a really hot labor market looks like. Uh, And even though the headline uh, estimates uh, uh, missed, uh, the internals of the jobs report are very good and the revisions are positive. And I do believe we'll see more positive revisions over time on the jobs data. But this is a very interesting time in economic history, just because uh, economic growth has been the best in decades. Uh, Inflationary uh, data has been the hottest in decades. And yet today, still the 10-year yield is at 1.80%. We're definitely going to be talking about the uh, 10-year yield for sure. But let's let's talk about that, Jobs. You had a great um, article on Friday about the Jobs Report. A lot of uh, media companies, you know, sort of the headline was it misses expectations. It, it missed estimates. So tell us why, in your opinion, that's not such a big deal. Well, the again, the internals of the labor market are the best I've ever seen. Uh, job openings are over 10 million. The jobless claims data is uh, where at levels last seen in 1969. Uh, the headline jobs data has missed. A lot of people in America have been calling in sick right? Uh, This is our sixth or seventh wave right now uh, of COVID. But the internals are good. And as long as the internals are this good, the labor market is fine. We're going to have a time in our history, hopefully soon, where we're going to have five to six months where we don't have to worry about cases rising or anything to that regard. And the labor market is there. And here's a good example. After 2008, uh, job openings were a little bit uh, over uh, 2 million. Uh, job growth was r- uh, really slow at that point. Here, the last uh, few months, just because of what COVID has done to the economic data line, uh, it's, it's, it's been so fast, especially the employment to population ratio of prime age uh, labor force ages 25 to 54 have shot up in the fastest uh, pace ever recorded in history. So the labor market is good, even though the headline can miss. I, and I, I still believe what I wrote last year in 2021, that I believe we should be able to get 
all the jobs back that we lost to COVID, but that would be September of 2022. Uh, this was before Delta. This is before Omicron. Omicron's cases are what a tsunami looks like. But these things shall fade in time. And the labor market is still there because the economy is still running very hot right now. So, you know, let's talk about that. Why did you pick September of, of this year that you think everything will be back by? You know, even though I wrote the America's Back Recovery Model on April 7th, the one data line that I knew and that I've, uh, that I've talked about a lot would lag is the jobs data. And unlike other people, I've never believed in this mass labor force of Americans sitting at home since 1945, not working. It, it is It has been a core root of my economic work for a very long time. I was a big job openings person since in the previous expansion. So when I was tweeting Jolt's 10 million, you know, it was not because I thought, well, hey, guess what? All of a sudden, everybody's going to come back to work when the uh, disaster relief is done. The trend has been your friend for a very long time. Uh, job openings have been rising. Job growth data in a traditional cycle has not been booming like that would be very normal with the population growth slowing. So there are parts of the United States of America that do not have uh, a, a very fast growing labor force in terms of young people. but you're still dealing with COVID, right? So until we could get a clearance, like, you know, let it uh, let our economy run normally, it's going to take a while. So I tagged September of uh, 2022. This was uh, at the beginning of uh, 2021. So we, I, I always give updates on how many jobs we need past the revisions to get us there. And again, this was before Delta. This is before Omnichrome or whatever is coming in next. But we're heading toward that way. And that looks pretty normal to me. But again, there's parts of the United States of America that have a lot of older people and they don't have enough younger people coming in. And it's harder for them to find labor. A lot of people thought, well, once the disaster relief is over, everyone will get back to work. That wasn't the case either. So what's going on currently is consistent with my work in the previous expansion and currently right now. You know, one of the things that you mentioned and, and that you bring up in your latest um, article is education and employment and how that affects who it is that still doesn't have a job um, and the labor force and, and what's out there and how that and, and that has a direct effect on housing. So so kind of walk us through who is it that we're still, you know, is still looking for jobs? Where are we still seeing the employment lag? So traditionally, the people that uh, have not finished high school, have the highest unemployment rates, regardless of where we are in the uh, economic expansion or even recession. Uh, currently, right now, even though it's not the biggest uh, portion of our labor force, and, you know, it's under 9%, uh, that unemployment rate has been collapsing very fast lately. Uh, so there's not enough uh, there's not enough workers currently uh, to to get these really big job numbers. We have enough to the civilian labor force is like 162 million. We have a, a near a, a little bit over a, really 150 million if you count self-employed people working. So there isn't this massive labor force. But again, this crisis was uh, the service sector. And what had happened was it wasn't housing homeowners, right? Homeowners traditionally have $100,000 income. Uh, a lot of the jobs with that were paying $60,000 or more were back really by October of 2020. So uh, again, forbearance, one of the reasons why people got off of forbearance, a lot of those people got their jobs back. But service sector workers that tend to get lower base pay that have the fastest wage growth right now that are quitting their jobs at the fastest rate because they could get uh, better pay, uh, that is more for the rental side. But during this crisis, we plugged the holes with disaster relief. So it wasn't going to be a homeowner crisis. This is why I was very adamant that 
for the forbearance crash bros would fail in a tragic manner. Uh, so you look at that, you look at the unemployment rates of those that never finished high school or just have a high school education and no college, and their unemployment rates are falling down uh, in a fast fashion. So we're getting there to where we have a very tight labor market. Unlike the previous expansion, uh, job openings, even though they're rising, they weren't at levels here, and then we weren't at levels in the jobless claims data. And if you if you add demographics to everything, the service sector workers, the rental market, wage growth is going to pick up there. Uh, rents are going to pick up. This is why I, I talked about you know rent inflation so much last year. Uh, that's the sector of housing that this data line impacts. Uh, so rent inflation will be a story, even though the rate of growth should slow down. There's a lot of different measurements of rent. Uh, that was the housing story, not so much of homeowners uh, during this crisis. You know, it's it's really striking when uh, you did a breakdown of the unemployment rate. Um, you know, versus how much education people had, even for those who have less than a high school diploma, the unemployment rate is 5.2%. I mean, that's crazy good. I mean, you go down, then you get all the way down to people who have bachelor's degree and higher. It's 2.1%. I don't even know how you get better than that. You traditionally don't want, um, you don't want unemployment rates really under, uh, three or two and a half percent because, that really means that you have a lack of labor. Like Nebraska has like 1% unemployment rate. You know, that, that's great. That's a first world problem, but it also shows that you don't have enough labor. Uh, now, there's a lot of jobs in America that you don't need a college education. So I always say, you know, we want to have college educated unemployment rates for everyone. Uh, but, you know, the, the the steep drop in the unemployment rate for those that didn't finish high school is showing you how tight the labor market is. And, and for people that are looking for labor, they have to fight for wages now or fight for labor now. So uh, one of the things I've talked about always, I do this hashtag on Twitter for some time, a tighter labor market is a good thing, right? People always complain about wages on the bottom end. Well, here it is. This is what's happening. Uh, people are quitting their jobs. They're getting better pay. And this is what you want to see because those with a college education are always fine. You know, this is why I always say the student loan debt crisis, especially for those who finished college, really, come on. Unemployment rates are low. These people get paid the most. They have the largest financial assets. It's those that didn't have the most education are now actually the labor market that has their kind of pricing power, right? So it's it's the fight for labor. And I think this is a good thing for America because the wage growth coming in from the bottom end is a positive for labor. I know it's a stress for for uh, people that own businesses and have to fight for it. But this is, again, a first world problem. Love it. And, you know, it goes with your whole thesis that, you know, there isn't going to be a crash because people have this long-term fixed debt and their wages, wages are rising. What, what in that in that calculation means a housing crash? Yeah, you know, again, I think the the what's interesting about this uh, new expansion or just the past uh, five or six years what the housing bulls missed from 2002 to 2005 is that was a credit boom. You can see adjusting to inflation, uh, debt expansion was massive from 2002 to 2005. And also the debt structures were very unhealthy, right? You can, you can break down the debt structures and show that there was a lot of recast uh, um, uh, rate issues You know, once those loans uh, uh, finally get the recast. But in 2005, that was the peak of housing in terms of sales. Sales were declining 2005, six, and seven, and then eight. Delinquencies, bankruptcies, and foreclosures were rising 2005, six, seven, and eight. And then on top of that, the job loss recession happened. So it's much different now. Now people, Americans, homeowners have, again, 
fixed low debt costs versus rising wages versus nested equity, boring vanilla debt structures. They're in their house. They stay in their house long as they're in. Homeowners have never looked this good on paper ever. And that's a total positive for the housing market in that sense. Uh, And and we can see it right now because the forbearance has literally collapsed from near 5 million to under 882,000. And that number is still coming down because a lot of Americans got their jobs back and there were legit homeowners before the crisis happened. Really incredible. You know, our headline for this uh, article is unemployment rates and mortgage rates both under 4% because we you really wanted to you know highlight both of those things happening at the same time so tell us what unemployment rates and mortgage rates i mean i mean why is that important and and why is that so interesting you know it's it's i i'm very sympathetic to those people that say hey listen we have unbelievable hot economic growth the labor market is hot inflation has never been this hot in a very long time but the 10 year yield is below 2% yeah, that's kind of how it's work. The trend is your friend, right? <clears throat> the bond market works differently than what people assume it to be. They believe because inflation is hot on a very short-term basis that mortgage rates should be. In, in theory, right now, if you believe that mortgage rates should be seven, eight percent, right? Uh, uh, we should we, we we our our inflation to mortgage rate spread is very long. But in that article, I put a chart with inflation rate of growth and the bond yield. And if you go back to 2009 and 2007, we had a collapse in inflation. Uh, That's when oil prices crashed. The 10-year yield went down, but not so much, right, Uh, to to go with the rate of growth inflation. Here, we have the opposite effect. We have very uh, hot inflation. And remember, off of every rebound, the base effects of where uh, inflation is, you're going to see hot data. Here, because core inflation is really pushed by housing. Rent inflation is going to pick up. And I remember talking to the Washington Post early in uh, last year, talking about we're going to get to 2% core inflation faster and stay there longer just because of shelter inflation. But the bond market doesn't run with that one-to-one. And in that chart that I put in that article, hopefully it gives some people some perspective on how bond yields have been going in a downtrend for many years. And yeah, you know, 180 in the previous expansion People will be going, hey, there's some, the bond market is saying the economy is weak. Here, we have the hottest economy, but yet the 10-year yields at 1.8%. And we're, we, even though we haven't tested that peak range yet of 1.94% that I've talked about since 2020, um, uh, we're getting close there. So it's really exciting. So this is a very exciting week for people who track the bond market to see, does the bond market still sell off? Or will there be a bond rally just because the sell-off recently has been so intense? Okay, well, you know, for those of us who are not up on the bond market, say say I'm a mortgage lender, I, you know, whether I work at a big lender or a small lender, what does the bond market have to do with my daily life? Like, what, how does that affect the rates? How does that affect things? Everything. And if you're a mortgage person and you're not tracking the bond market every single day, shame on you, right? Because that has been the number one thing you should have followed not so much on the MBS, the downtrend in the bond market. And if mortgage people still haven't figured this out, okay, that's a lack of education because that is the most important thing. And one of the things I've written about uh, in the summer of 2020 is that if you want rates to go higher, the 10-year yield has to crack over 1.94%. Okay, it just can't. So what the bond market does is primarily the driver, right? I know a lot of people on mortgage-backed securities. Okay, that's fine, but you can't get higher rates 
or lower rates in a, in a big fashion until the 10-year yield goes with you. We had some dislocation in pricing uh, early in the crisis. It took some time to work itself out, but we're kind of back to normal to a degree. So follow that 10-year yield. Whoever is a technical analyst, friend of yours or anything, or on HazuWire, uh, that 10-year yield is your oxygen. It is your food. It is your water. That's what mortgage rates go by. Uh, this is why I talk about the bond market first rather than mortgage rates. Mortgage rates, to me, are a secondary factor. The 10-year yield has always been the most important uh, issue. This goes back to a lot of, you know, I think about in 2018, where 50 economists were talking about, hey, guess what? Mortgage rates are going higher. Everything's going higher. Nobody, nobody was a technical analyst. But if you were a technical analyst in 2018, it would have shown you that you're at the peak levels of that downtrend because the 10-year yield matters more. And that's why mortgage people should follow people that or I have some encompass of somebody that talks about the bond market uh, religiously, because that's really important. Uh, and history in the past four decades have shown that. Well, and Logan, that's that's one of the reasons you're our lead analyst is because we feel like the way that you're tracking these things is so applicable to our audience who really needs to know, how does this affect my business? How does this affect the overall economy? What's going on in housing? And and that's why we love having you on. So, so let's talk about what you're looking for this week. You think it's going to be an exciting week. We don't have a lot of reports coming out this week. What, what are you looking for? Well, one of the things that um, it's common with my work during this uh, recovery phase is that I keep on using the term uh, uh, the most unhealthiest housing market uh, post-2010 because, again, the days on market are just simply too low. And when you have days on market too low, guess what happens? Americans push prices, right? The builders push uh, cost inflation. Sellers want to sell at the highest price. This is why I deem this to be the unhealthiest housing market. First world problem because demand is stable. So one of the things I'm going to I'm going to go over uh, at some point this week is to talk about you know how can we get from an unhealthy housing market to a positive housing market? How can we get balance? And going back to the summer of 2020, I talk about need the 10 year yield to break above 1.94 percent, and you need duration higher to cool things down. Okay, we're not there yet, but I'm going to talk into that. However. I'm going to also explain why does the Fannie Mae survey or the Michigan survey of home buyer sentiment, you know, a lot of bearish people in America last year in housing use that sentiment to say Americans didn't want to buy homes. Literally from the point that they were pushing that premise of uh, purchase application data, mortgage demand picked up toward the end of the year. This is one of the reasons why uh, pending home sales and existing home sales are, are trending above my peak sales range is that. This isn't because people don't want to buy homes. This is because there's too much competition. Inventory is too low. Inventory levels are at all-time lows. So guess what? If you're a home buyer, yeah, it sucks. It sucks that you have to compete with other people. That's what the sentiment surveys were telling you. It wasn't that that's it, Americans aren't going to buy homes. They want to buy homes. They just don't have enough supply and they don't like competing. This is why I say the healthy housing market is when days on market is actually 30 days or more. It gives people choices. It gives sellers choices on what to do after they sell the homes. Currently, we don't have that now. So I, I, I'll go into that a little bit more details. One of the things that you know you always talk about is, hey, you should follow people who have economic models, not people who just throw up like, oh, mortgage rates are going to get this much, and and it's just kind of like throwing them up against the wall and seeing what sticks, right? And so you had a, you had the America's Back Recovery Model, which you wrote in 2020, which was very uh, predictive and and amazingly correct. But it's not it's not the only model you have. You have a recession model, so so you're tracking where we are in this expansion, and and what are you looking for right now? I think you you talk about the red flags for a recession. 
session. What do those look like? So when I, when I, you know, just like I have a recovery model or expansion model, I have a recession model. So there's a few things I call them red flags. They all have to kind of rise up together. Unless you have an exogenistic shock like COVID, you know, for, you know, for housing wire in February of 2020, I said, Hey, the chaos theory, the butterfly effect. If this happens, if, if COVID hits our shores, we're going to be in a recession. We're going to, the bond market's going to hit, stocks are going to hit, but don't overreact because the economy was fine. Here, we have one of the recession red flags already up. Uh, the two-year yield is above 56 basis points, which means the Fed's going to start ra- uh, raising rates. Uh, the unemployment rate got to 4.2%. Red flag number one is, is is already raised. This is a progression of the economic expansion. This is real tedious, boring work, but it actually works if, on a historical basis. Uh, then when the Federal Reserve starts its rate hike, that's recession red flag too. Right now, we're looking at March as the first uh, time the Fed raised rates. There is a progression of each economic expansion going back decades. There are points during that expansion where you have to have a recession watch. Leading economic index usually falls four to six. That's another one I've talked about. The inverted yield curve is something that I'm looking for right now to see if it happens. Okay, so there are middle to late stage uh, economic cycle data lines that we've seen. And it's crazy because it happened so fast. And that's how fast this recovery is. So always remember, you want to follow people that have economic models expansionary and recessionary because that's how it works models and economic cycles don't sleep they don't stop on a calendar date or anything it's an ongoing process so you always have to have a live variable model going with it and that's my job as an analyst is to progress people within an expansion a recession and expansion because economics doesn't sleep ever right Uh, and it doesn't go on your calendar dates or it doesn't care if it's a friday or monday it's an ongoing moving variable and you have to move with it well, and that's why we love having you on. Okay, just real quick. So you, do you expect, what are you expecting for mortgage rates when, when you look at all these things? Well, the, the peak range uh, for 2022, uh, 3.375 to 3.625, going with a 10-year yield, the, the, the high level was 1.94%. I, I, I do make a case for getting up to 2.42%. We're not there. We're not even, uh, not even going to engage that discussion until we could close over 1.94%. So right now, we have had a major sell-off in the bottom market rates are picking up right now but they're in that kind of the higher end range oh follow that 1.94 percent we could close above there and we could get follow through bond selling for me what i want is balance that's the one thing that could create balance in the housing market but we're not there just yet so uh, we're working our way so it's a very exciting week uh for anybody in the mortgage industry i know some people might not like it but still uh for bond market people like myself it's 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 a lot of fun your enthusiasm is contagious. And um, anybody who wants to really dig into what you're talking about on a, on a more granular level, you know, they need to subscribe to HW Plus. They can get all of your stuff there. Um, and you really have just an incredible library of articles that really walk us through where we are, where we're going. So I would encourage anyone to do that. But Logan, thank you so much for being on Housing Wire Daily again. It is my pleasure as always. Looking for more insight into what will happen in 2022? Or maybe you need more information on what in the world is happening with the federal regulators. Or you could just be looking for information on how to stay competitive as the industry shifts to a purchase-focused market. Our HW Plus Premium Membership comes with all of this insight and more. With your HW Plus Membership, you'll get at least five HW Plus articles a week that dive deeper into the daily news to help you confidently make business decisions. To join, go to housingware.com forward slash membership.
Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. I hope you have a great afternoon. If you haven't already, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on all the hottest stories crossing our news desk daily. The podcast is now available wherever you like to listen. Make sure to tune in tomorrow.